This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. For the past uh, couple months, we've been looking at what it means to be a Christian. And uh, we've been looking at lots of different dimensions of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, But really what we're saying is that there is a foundational difference, a distinction between a heart that is just morally restraining itself and a heart that has been supernaturally changed. There's a difference between moral restraint, which many look at and think that's what Christianity is, versus a heart that has been supernaturally transformed. I'm going to put it another way. What that means is you can be serving, you can be active in the church, you can be morally virtuous, you can be giving and sacrificing, you can try to forgive, and yet you could be doing that out of fear, out of guilt, out of shame, just to keep going with the flow of what Christians do, and yet not know God, not know the gospel, not have the gospel deeply penetrate into your life. One of the hallmarks of Christian community is forgiveness. And forgiveness is more than just a private practice. It's more than just an emotional practice because only for a heart that truly feels absolutely loved by God is true forgiveness even possible. Is true forgiveness even possible? It's a responsibility. When, you, when, a heart, when a heart has been changed by the gospel, forgiveness becomes a responsibility. It becomes a need, something you need to do. Now, if you look at the end of this parable, it seems incredibly harsh, but it's very, very realistic. Here's this king who forgives this servant a great debt, but the servant in turn is not very forgiving. And so at the end, what happens to that servant? He's thrown into jail. He's turned over and he's tortured. He's tortured. And Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive from your heart. In other words, what he's saying is an unforgiving heart leads to torture, leads to eternal suffering. Now, a lot of us are going to hear that and say, wait a second, haven't we been learning so far for the last two months that salvation is not about works? And what this text is teaching us is that if if you haven't opened your heart in mercy to someone who needs it, if you remain angry at this person, if you're gossiping and only saying bad things about this person, if you're always malicious about this person, it proves that you have not truly grasped my mercy towards you. What is fruit? Fruit is what you see on the outside that is indicative of the health of something on the inside. That's fruit. Fruits reveal that a tree is actually alive. It's that it has life. You take two apple trees. One is very bare. The other has plenty of fruit, healthy, good-looking fruit. Same circumstances, same sun, same ground, same soil, right? Same rain. 
Fruits reveal that the tree has life. So when you refuse to forgive somebody from your heart, what that means is that there is an inner self-righteousness. There's an inner sense of feeling so wrong. There's an inner sense of self-pity. And so even if you have been forgiven a great debt, you're not really free. And because you're gripped, you're not really free. You're always accusing. You're always stepping on the neck of other people. And it leads, which Jesus says here, just like the servant at the end, it leads to a life of eternal torture, enormous suffering. What I want to emphasize here is this. To not forgive, to not forgive then is a life and death situation, spiritually speaking. It's a life and death situation. Because to not forgive in the heart is going to create an inner implosion that's going to ultimately corrode your soul and lead you to a life of torture, okay? Love is patient. Love is patient. Patience, that Greek word is long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. Forgiveness, three points today. I'm going to try to be as pedantic as possible. Much of this has been influenced by my favorite preacher, Tim Keller, and it's, he's had a profound, his commentary really on this, on this passage is one of the most profound that I've ever, I've ever seen, I've ever heard. So I'm going to basically lay it out for you as pedantically as possible. Why forgiveness is important. What is it really? And lastly, how do you do it? Why is it important to forgive? What is forgiveness? How do you truly forgive somebody? Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. Let's go into this. First, why is it important? Why do we need to forgive? Let's look at this parable. The key to getting this parable, the key to getting this parable is to understand, first of all, the magnitude of this debt. That's going to kind of set the stage for us, okay? Here's this king. This king is settling his accounts with his servants. And one servant in particular owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a very subjective word. We don't understand what a talent is. In fact, that's, that word talent, that measure has kind of been lost. But what we do understand is that the average person in that ancient time earned about one to one and a half talents per year. Okay? One to one and a half talents per year. That was the annual salary of an average person then. What that means, if you take the average person of a person here in America, and some of you be shocked by this. That's why, we, that's why we're engaged in this city. If you take the average salary of a person in America, that's $30,000 a year. So one talent, if you were to kind of take that to, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, extrapolate that to, say, $30,000 uh, a year. You take one to one and a half talents as the cultural equivalent to an annual salary. Multiply that by 10000 This person owed the king three hundred to $450 million. This person was not the butler. When we hear servant, we think, oh, he's like the street sweeper. This person was not the butler. This person was probably the governor of a region. He probably helped to rule a province. He was a leader. He was a leader in this kingdom. And either through some sort of corruption, some sort of selfish mismanagement, he somehow squandered or embezzled an enormous amount of money that if you take $350 million today, calculate centuries and eons of inflation, this person damaged single-handedly was bringing damage to the kingdom. A disastrous effect on the kingdom. There was no such thing back then of a public treasury. You didn't have a public treasury. Every coin that came into the kingdom belonged to the king. It was actually the king's wealth. In fact, in Jesus' time, every coin bore the resemblance of Caesar. Why? Because it was actually Caesar's money. It was his mint. It belonged to him. Every tax went into the king's account. It all belonged to the king. And so that money was often used and to go back out. If you were a good king, it would go back out and would be used to restore uh, the areas that were weak in his kingdom. It would restore, pay for the military and all the improvements. It was the king's money. Jesus uses an amount that is so enormous. 
even if you were the emperor in Rome, now think about it, $450 million is a lot of money even here today. Take it all the way back centuries and imagine how much money in that, in that world, in that empire back then. Tremendous damage to that empire. The kingdom would definitely feel that hurt. The king would have been in jeopardy to some degree. There are certain regions that means that are being utterly deprived because of this mismanagement, because of this uh, gross error by this servant. Yet in spite of the fact that this person put the king's kingdom in jeopardy, the king has tremendous poise. You don't see him losing composure. The servant begs him, be patient with me. Be patient with me. What does that word mean? Because we see it again, patience. What does that word mean? In the Greek, the word is macrothumia. Very, very famous word. You see that all the way all over in the Bible. Macrothumia. It's a compound word. Macro means long. Thumia means heat. Long heat. Long suffering. It brings us to a metaphor, a borrowed metaphor. Here's a metaphor. The metal mercury at room temperature loses composure. Even at room temperature, you see a mercury thermometer, you break it at room temperature, what happens? It runs all over the place. Most metals need more heat, a tremendous amount of heat before it loses composure, before it starts to run all over the place. What is, what is Jesus saying here when he uses the word macrothumia? Spiritual patience is that inner power to bear the heat to bear injuries without melting down. That's what it is. Things are constantly happening to you, but they don't destroy you. You don't lose composure. Things don't destroy your inner posure, po uh, poise, your composure. Things don't take away from your joy because they don't control you. If you see somebody, they're always losing composure because of something that's going on in their lives. They're running all over the place. They're losing themselves. They're leaking. They're losing composure. They're losing poise. Why? Because something else has controlled them. Jesus is saying, if the gospel has gripped you, there will be an inner poise that runs deeper than any heat that you experience. You're not being remade. You're not being shaped by what's happening to you by what's being done to you, you don't melt down. That's what he's saying. Why is this important? Here's why it's important. When you're suffering, you're a victim. Anyone here, and we've all suffered here, some of us are suffering tremendously here. Whenever you suffer, you are a victim. When that thing happens, like a random shock happens in your life, that's like short suffering. It's very intense. It's like a flash suffering. Very, very short, right? You don't have to do anything to suffer like that. It just kind of happens, Boom, pain, you know, illness, it could be any, any sort of thing, right? You don't have to do anything to suffer like that. You don't have a choice there, but to be long-suffering, to be long-suffering is a decision. It is a bold decision. It is a deliberate decision. It is a choice to bear injuries for a long extended period of time without melting down. You're just constantly absorbing pain. You're constantly absorbing suffering. You're, it's a choice. It has to be a choice. It's a very complex choice. I'm not saying it's an easy choice. It's a very complex choice. On one hand, you need to accept the suffering. It's a choice. You need to accept the injuries. That's a choice. On the other hand, you're not bearing, to not bear them, right? Not bearing them at all, you're going to fall apart. It's going to destroy you on the inside. If you choose not to bear it, you are just going to fall apart and be destroyed on the inside. So on one hand, it's a choice. On the other hand, if you don't learn to bear it, if you don't grow to be able to bear it, you're going to fall apart. Long-suffering is bold. Long-suffering is active. But what happens, what Jesus says is when you do that, you're going to take your life back. You have possession of your heart. It's a way to freedom. He says, when you're not able to do that, you're controlled by so many other factors in your life, you actually lose yourself. You lose your life. You're actually gripped. But to be able to long suffer as a choice, it's a way to freedom. And it's, it's a, in a world where suffering is law, 
I mean, that is one of the natural laws of our lives. Everyone here is a sufferer. Everyone here is a sinner. That's, that's what the Bible says. That's one thing that's common to all of us here in this room. We're all suffering and we're all sinning. In a world where suffering then is a natural spiritual law of life, there's no more important quality. There's no more important trait. In Luke chapter 21, verse 16, if you look at the old King James version of that passage, in patience, in long suffering, you will possess your souls. You will find yourself. You will have yourself. You will have your life back. The ability to bear injuries without meltdown is remarkable. It takes remarkable character real character. That's how you know. That's a fruit. That's what it means to be a Christian. The sermon isn't over yet. We're just getting started, okay? The Bible says you're going to have your life back. However, in this passage, we see a very particular aspect of suffering. Long suffering. It's that inner power to bear mistreatment from other people without melting down into a world of resentment a resentment that destroys you on the inside. A forgiving spirit without losing that inner sense of poise and composure. In other words, when you forgive somebody, because that's the actual context here, when you forgive somebody, they're dead. What you're saying is, I'm refusing to carry the anger along with me. That's what you're saying. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't know how much this sermon really applies to me because right now I don't really have anyone I need to forgive. It's not really a problem for me anyway because I don't really need, to, I don't really need this. I'm a pretty forgiving person. I've always been known to be a pretty forg- forgiving person. First of all, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure about yourself. In Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews warns. He says, take care lest you harbor a root of bitterness. Take care, be careful, be on watch, be cautious, lest you harbor a root of bitterness. That's a very interesting metaphor that the author uses. He's saying that your anger can be a root. Why does he say that? Let's say you have a backyard. You own a home, you have a backyard, you see this big tree, and uh, you want to get rid of that tree. So what do you do? You cut the tree down all the way, you just basically take, you cut it all the way down to its bare parts until you get to the stump. And what you do is you take this, this saw and you shave off the surface so that the entire stump, the visible surface is gone and you let it go. What happens? 10, 20, 30 years later, what do you see? That tree is back. That tree is back. Why is it there? I shaved it off. It's gone. I don't see it anymore. It grew back because the, you have no idea. Certain trees, the roots are actually larger than the tree. That root becomes a complex network, so deep, so penetrating, so expansive. It's a network, and it entangles itself to the ground, and it hooks itself so deep. And the longer it goes, the longer it penetrates, and it stays. There's no way you can't uproot a tree like that. The root is actually the toughest part of the tree. Most of the tree is underground. In fact, most of the source of the tree is underground. It creates this strong, hard, dark, cold, entangled network. Why does the author say, be careful lest you harbor a root of bitterness? That means any one of us here is prone to having a root of bitterness, a root of anger, if, you're, if you are too quick to forgive, if you don't think you need to forgive. See, it's very possible to admit that we have anxiety. It's very easy to do that. It's easy to admit, for some people, their lust. But it's very, very difficult to admit anger. Why? Because we're always minimizing anger. It's difficult for us to see how angry we are. We can't. There's no measure for anger. Right? I mean, you can always find somebody who's more angry than you. That's why it's so difficult to measure anger. Anger is deeply subterranean. It's a root. It's a root that grows. It resides very, very deep in your heart. It affects your soul. And you don't realize what it's doing to you and how it's affecting you and how it's affecting the way you interact with other people, the way you withdraw from people, the way you hold back from people, your trust in people or your distrust in others the way you trust people in general, certain types of people. 
because you're angry at one person, now an entire type of person has been uh, pretty much uh, written off. Do you see that? It becomes this tangled network of vengefulness and bitterness, tightly wound, so hard, so dark, because you don't touch it, because you've minimized it, you've only been shaving the surface of it, and as a result, it's affecting you, and inwardly, it's corroding you and directing you, and you become more selfish, more self-centered, more self-righteous, more self-absorbed, until there's this unless there's this great act of forgiveness, anger will twist you. That's really what Jesus is saying. Anger will twist you, contort you, contort your soul. You actually become much less of a human being. It inflicts this this low-grade fever of self-pity in your life so that it distorts your view of yourself and distorts your eyes, your view of other people. That's what it does. And some of us, we say, well, I'm over it. I'm just over it. It's okay. I'm done. It's over. The Bible says, take care, lest you harbor a root of bitterness that's twisting you. And then you start to reclude from people. And then it starts to control you. And then you start to dismiss people who damage you. And then you try to protect yourself from other people who could damage you. And then you become incredibly defensive and you become incredibly self-justifying, and then you start judging people, and you become incredibly uh, self-justifying and self-defensive and then self-righteous. That anger, what's happening? That anger is passing into you, flowing into you now. A passageway has been opened up for anger to now really, really build that network. And the more angry you are, anybody who's around you gets affected by that. They be, start to become angry. They start to, uh, to, to absorb that poison. And what happens is they start to build uh, that tangled web. And your, your web starts to, the roots start to intertwine. And what happens is that network just starts to grow more and more expansive. And the thing is, all you see on the outside is what? A tree. A tree. If you look at... the before I go into this, we're a church in the city, so I have to say this. Where do you think the heart of racism is? What is the heart of racism? It's a superiority that begins with an anger, right? It's assumptions that are made, a superiority that's built on assumptions. There's an anger associated with these assumptions, and what happens? That network, that tangled network starts to grow. And if you let that go for a long period of time, what happens? Any type of bigotry, any type of chauvinism, any type of racism, any type of classism, it begins. The root of it is anger. It's a pride and an anger. That's what it is, you see? If you look at the way the parable ends, here's a servant. He's forgiven, but then he looks at somebody who's who's actually committed much, much less, a much less egregious crime. He owed uh, just a, a few denarii. We're talking about $20 here. $450 million, $20. He says, you, you're a sinner too. And what does he do? He is not anywhere near as forgiving. In fact, he is not forgiving at all. What he does is he grabs the person. He chokes the person. He throws him into prison. Back then, a prison was taken very, very far from the king, any type of life, to be in prison. It's not like uh, our, our prisoners today have rights. But back then, you had no rights. You've lost your citizenship. You've basically been cast out. You're pretty much left for dead. And so here's this person who owed a mere $20 to this man, this servant, who's been forgiven this great debt. And what does he do? Because he's so empty on the inside, even $20 is like a great debt to him. And so what does he do? He grabs him, he chokes him, he imprisons him, and the king comes. And this king is just. He sees this. And what does he do? He says, you're not grateful because you're not forgiving. You're going to be tortured now. The king is a great man. Clearly we see that he's a good man, but he orders torture. Why? Jesus says, if you don't learn to forgive, the anger is already passed into you and you are living a subterranean torture in your life. You are already in prison. You are already separated. You are already controlled by your bitterness. That's the sign. That's the sign. You're never going to live a free life that way. You're suffering and you're in torture. You're always reeling and distrusting and self-protecting and bitter. You're like an animal in a cage. He says, you're in torture. You're already in jail. You're already in prison. You're less human. You're less free. 
That's why this is important. That's why forgiveness is important. That's the first point. Now we're going to move a bit quicker to these next two points. What is it? What is forgiveness? There are three things this king does to the servant. And what Jesus is prescribing here is that as we see this king do it, we need to do this. Whenever we're wronged, to prevent the little roots of anger from forming, to prevent the little roots of self-pity and cynicism, we need to do this. There are three quick things. First, he took pity on the man, then he canceled the debt, and lastly, he let him go. He took pity on him, he canceled the debt. It's written right here, he let it go. Now, we need to pay attention to this very carefully. First, he was moved to pity. He felt compassion toward the misery of this man. Whenever someone wrongs you, what Jesus is saying is automatically, it's kind of natural, it's built in our sinfulness, and, and, and so it's in our DNA. Naturally, when somebody wrongs you, your heart automatically emphasizes the differences that you have with this person. I mean, you look at every difference. When somebody wrongs you to the degree that they've wronged you, you start looking at every minor difference that you have with this person. But the Bible teaches that if you want to grow an inner poise, if you want to grow long-suffering, you have to make a decision, deliberate decision, to emphasize the common things that you share with this person, the commonalities, the same qualities that you share. Whenever someone wrongs you, uh, my favorite preacher, Tim Keller, he says, what we tend to do, do is we tend to make caricatures of that other person. I thought that was very insightful. What's a caricature? A caricature is a drawing, an image of the person, but it's different than a picture. It's different than a photograph. Because a caricature takes the person's worst physical flaws and augments them so that pretty much the picture is their flaw. You can't see the picture without looking at the flaw and what that person is being defined by, right? That's what a caricature is. When somebody wrongs you, spiritually what we do is we take their worst quality, we reduce them to that one flaw. So if you've been incredibly damaged by somebody's lies, that person from now on is only a liar. If somebody has cheated on you, right, that person is only a cheater, only an adulterer, because the, it goes to the, the level of the depth of the pain and the suffering. That's what we do. Now, when you lie, it's different, right? When you lie, uh, well, it's very complex, it's very nuanced, there's reasons for why, it kinda, it's not really like that, you see, and the reason why we're able to do that, we're justifying ourselves, because whenever you look at yourself and your flaws, you're a three-dimensional view of yourself. You look at yourself in 3D. You see all the different nuances and the shades and the angles, and it makes you, because you see yourself as a whole person. But when somebody sins against you, you see them pretty much in one dimension. And it's a caricature of that dimension. So you tend to augment their worst flaws. That's what we do. Why do we do this? It's because deep inside of every person, deep in, the Bible teaches us that deep inside every human being, we're afraid deep inside that we're not valuable. We're afraid that we don't have worth. And that creates a very, very deep, subterranean, spiritual anxiety. And that spiritual anxiety creates a need to constantly justify yourself. So from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the moment sin was discovered, what does Adam do? It was her fault. What does she do? It was the serpent's fault. There's constant blaming, constant blame shifting, constant self-justifying, you see. In fact, Adam says, the woman you gave me made me do this. That's what Adam says. Right? So uh, what we're saying here is that there's this deep need to justify ourselves, and the way we do it easily and subtly and best is we emphasize differences that we have with one another. That's why we're racists by nature. By nature, we're all racists. Right? To be able to overcome racism, you have to make a deliberate attempt to emphasize the commonalities that you have with somebody and not the differences. That's why we're chauvinists at heart. That's why all of us have some form of prejudice in our lives. But when someone's wronged you, we're constantly emphasizing the differences that we have, specific differences that we have with other people because it makes us feel better. At the end of the day, it makes us feel better about ourselves. 
If you don't want to be melted down by your anger, you have to rediscover your human commonality. He or she is fallible and confused. He or she is a mixture of good and bad qualities. He or she is weak. But you know what? I am fallible. I'm confused. I'm a mixture of good and bad qualities. I am weak. She's a sinner. He's a sinner. I'm a sinner too. She inflicts pain. But you know what? I've inflicted pain. My sin is also so nuanced. Even my goodness is nuanced, you see. The Bible teaches we're all fallen, and yet, by God's mercy, we're all redeemable creatures. We're all sinners, and yet, we all can have a Savior. We all can be children of God. That truth should make us free. So we have to empathize. We have to take pity. We have to have passion, compassion, right? The word compassion on somebody is with passion. In Latin, with passion suffering. We have to suffer with the person, right? We take pity. Secondly, we cancel the debt. We don't take revenge. We don't exact payment because to take revenge and to exact payment is to deliberately make the person suffer out of your anger. We don't take revenge. We don't exact payment. We don't make the other person pay a debt, that debt, to the degree that you feel that you've suffered or you've been damaged. We try to exact the same kind of suffering on another person. That's what it means to cancel the debt, to not do that. Now, it doesn't mean if somebody is in sin, if somebody's wronged you in a particular way, that it doesn't require action. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you take no action, right? If somebody's wronged you in a way that requires action, requires justice, requires accountability, requires authority, you can't just let it go. That's not what he's saying here. The Bible has strict provision for that. If you look at the rest of the Bible, strict provision for that. God is a just God. This is a just king that we're seeing in this story. But what it does mean is that when someone wrongs you, there is this emotional debt of pain that is built up. There is this, when somebody has wronged you, and everyone here has been wronged in some way, right? When somebody has wronged you, you automatically sense an obligation that this person owes you something emotionally, Right? That's why, when, I mean, spouses, you know, when your spouse, when you feel like your spouse has wronged you, there's a natural chasm and a distance that's created because you feel like that person owes you. And until they say something to you, until they somehow make up for that debt, that distance is there. You understand that. Everybody here understands that, right? There's a distance that's created, a sense of obligation that this person owes you. Somebody's got to pay for that wrong. That's why anybody who sits there and says, well, I believe in a God that just kind of forgives, then you don't, that, that God doesn't exist because of, we've been created in God's image and we struggle with somebody on an earthly level who has wronged us. And we understand that a distance is created and we can't let it go. You can't just let it go. Somebody has to pay that price to bridge that gap. If you've ever been betrayed in your life, you can never say, why can't God just forgive everybody? You can't ever say that. If you've ever been betrayed in your life, you would understand. Somebody's got to pay the debt. The pain doesn't just go away, right? I mean, let's say, let's say they don't ever bridge that gap. Will that pain ever just go away? You will harbor that. It hurts you. It's a greater pain sometimes when they don't bridge that gap. It just creates pain upon pain, right? Time does not heal that. That's a, that's a lie. That's a deception. Time buries it so that the network can start to grow and the t- entanglement starts to grow. The darkness can get deeper. Now, there are all sorts of ways to making people pay. There are all subsets, two categories of either retaliating or withdrawing. Those are the two ways that we make people pay. It's really just the subsets of the same thing. There are direct ways. You can insult them. You can hurt them physically. You can really get back at them. Right? There's also indirect ways of doing it. We gossip about people. You know what gossip is? Gossip is in private confessing other people's sins. That's really what gossip is. And you're doing it in a way that's going to damage them. You slander them. You, know, you tell lies about them. You take a truth or something that you see and you distort it. And that, that what you do, you're creating somebody that doesn't exist. But you're attributing that, that quality to this person. That's what you're doing. You're actually lying. You're giving false testimony. You're breaking a commandment of God. 
That's what you're doing, right? When you're ruining somebody's reputation, what are you doing? You're murdering that person. God says, do not murder. Jesus says, do not murder, right? In fact, Jesus says, well, I tell you the truth, even if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. This is what he's talking about here. So there are very direct ways of doing it. There are indirect ways of doing it. When you turn a cold shoulder to somebody, what are you doing? You're withdrawing. What you're saying is, to the degree that you've been hurt now, by me turning away from you, I know that this will hurt you, and I know then you will sense the gap. I'm paying you back. I'm making sure you hurt in the same way. You're indirectly despising them. You're indirectly showing contempt for them. That's what you're doing. You want to hurt them in the end. Why do we do it? Because you're making them pay the debt. You're making them pay that debt back. The more you see them hurt, they're paying that debt. The more you see them in pain or suffering, they're paying that debt. The more you hear about them suffering because of what you're doing, it makes you actually feel good because the debt is being paid. You're seeing them pay for it. Slowly, you feel less and less that pain, so you think. You feel better. But you know what's happening? When you do it like that, the anger starts to pass into your life. The network starts to grow. The heat has just kind of swept you along and has melted you into its likeness. So because now you're molding into the likeness of the anger, you're going to become corroded like that anger. And so if you make other people pay the debt, what happens is initially you feel better. But when that anger starts to pass into you, C.S. Lewis says eventually you just become the grumble. That's what hell is. Hell is a place where people have just become the grumble. The torture has begun. It won't be enough. It's like an addiction. You need to see them hurt more, and it will never be enough. Because if you really suffered, it will never be enough. It starts to change you, contort you, control you. You ever read Scarlet Letter? Hester Prynne committed a tremendous crime against her husband. She committed adultery. She wears the scarlet A, right, with Arthur Dimsdale. And it's her husband, Chillingworth, who basically, uh, he is apparently a good man, a righteous man in the beginning of the book, but he's angry, and it's, un, it's already, the network has already grown deep inside, and he's so bitter. What happens is he slowly starts to, uh, as he starts to kind of retaliate, against both Hester Prynne and Arthur Dimsdale, the anger starts to pass into him and he starts to contort. And Nathaniel Hawthorne is teaching us, Chillingworth at the end, he dies. He dies in his anger. He dies in his anger. What, now, if Nathaniel Hawthorne, Jesus Christ, and your pastor are saying the same thing, it's probably true, right? It's probably real. Listen to it, okay? The anger, do not let the anger pass into you. Don't make other people pay the debt because it's going to change you. It's going to control you, okay? And we do it in very subtle ways too. You know, uh, brief story. Uh, you know, I, I, there was a person in the church that I used to pastor a while back who, incredibly talented, but never, incredibly talented musician, yet never wanted to ever play. Whenever a pastor would ask her to play, she would refuse to play. When I finally met with her and asked her, she basically said, you know, my pastor back in the day, um, in the midst of finals when I was in college, I was suffering spiritually, and I wanted to talk to him, and all he wanted to know was whether or not I would be able to play on Sunday. That's all he cared about. And so I vowed I will never pay, play again. I will never play for the church again. Right? Faithful church in every other way. He said, I'll never play for the church again. You know what you're doing? You're still making that pastor pay. You see? Different church, different pastor, different staff, different leadership. You're still making them pay. You see that? That anger is passed into you. Now, we never want to admit that when we make other people pay, we're becoming like the evil because you feel better, you feel safer for a little while, but it changes you. It slowly starts to eat away. The roots of bitterness become this great network. That's what's happening in our lives. And what happens is the self-pity increases, the self-absorption increases, the righteousness increases, the self-justification increases, the self-protection increases. All that's happening, the self-defensiveness increases until all that's left is what? You. You are alone in the darkness 
and it's deep, and you're already entangled, and you're suffering. And it becomes this vicious cycle of blaming other people for that suffering, and then it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and you just, anybody who gets sucked into that vortex gets drawn in there with you. That's what's happening until all that's left is you, and you are alone in your darkness. That's called hell. None of us ever get thrown into hell. We choose it. You see, we choose it. It is a conscious, deliberate choice because we loved to do it. That's what it is. One of my favorite books is uh, Hamlet. And uh, in Hamlet, you see uh, through a series of incidents, this evil passes into Hamlet. And he wants to have vengeance against his uncle who basically killed his father and then married his mother, right? It's an incredibly convoluted story. And uh, that anger is now passed into other people and it passes into himself. I mean, that's where the famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, comes from. This, the anger is passed into him until finally everybody around Hamlet, William Shakespeare, incredibly insightful about what evil and, and uh, an evil heart can do. Everybody around Hamlet, everybody in the store dies. Everybody who's in the vicinity of Hamlet dies. You got Polonius, Ophelia, who is his love, Gertrude, his mother, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, his friends, the king, who is his authority figure, eventually himself. Everybody dies. That's Shakespeare's end of the story. That's how he sums up this parable. Mainly what he's saying is, if you are angry and you store it in your heart and you don't deal with it, everybody around you, including yourself, will be consumed. What does the king do? He takes the other option. It's a harder option. He cancels the debt. That's what he does. To cancel the debt is costly to you. Because what you're saying when you're canceling the debt, forgiveness, what you're saying is every time I have an opportunity to ruin this person's reputation, I will not do that. Every time I have an opportunity to retaliate, I will not do that. Every time I have the opportunity to inflict some sort of damage on the person because I'm angry at that person, I will not do that. Every time I have an opportunity to directly insult the person, embarrass the person, humiliate the person, bring the person down, I will not do that. When you do that, you are absorbing all the pain because you know you can do it and you're choosing not to for that person's sake, but more importantly, for your sake. That's forgiveness. Tremendous pain on yourself. You are, somebody's got to pay. Who's paying? You're the one that's paying. So you're the one that's been wronged and you're the one that's going to pay the debt. That's what you're doing. You're saying every single time I can inflict harm on this person, <laughs> now I got the person and when, th- when we do this, this person is going to shrivel, he's going he's gonna to suffer, and he's going to wither away. Yes, and when I see that happening, I'm going to hear it. I'm going to hear about it and yes, I will grow. I sound like Jafar from Aladdin, right? That's basically what's happening. You feel the pain of the other person and it makes you feel better and you're saying, no, I will not do it because I will become like that evil. And Christ is righteous. He is just. He is just. So there is accountability. He is just. So that we go, we handle it the right way. We handle evil the right way. There is a right way. There is a biblical way of handling when somebody wrongs you. And yet, what I will do is I will cancel the debt personally so that the evil will not pass into me. You know what the fruit of that is? Joy. You will have yourself. You will possess your soul. Luke chapter 21, 16. If you forgive, if you are patient, you will still have yourself. You still have a self. You are still a human being. You are not in prison. You are still free. Right? The anger will not pass into you. You're not going to pursue and go after the person because the anger has not passed into you. You're not constantly angry and breaking things privately because the anger has not passed into you. You see, the gospel is very balanced. On one hand, there is justice. But on the other hand, that justice, true justice, is not vengeful. True justice. Anyone who says, I want to get that person because it's just, if if there's even a hint of a vengeful tint to it, right, it's not justice. 
That's not how God views his people. That's not how God dealt with his anger. It's not sinful to be angry. God says, I am a wrathful, angry God. So it must not be sinful to be angry. It's how that anger is directed and handled, addressed, and executed. Right? That's the fruit. That's the fruit. On one hand, you don't avoid confrontation. On the other hand, you don't handle it with vengefulness. You see, you don't retaliate. You don't withdraw. That's what happens. Now, how do you do it? I'm going to end this very quickly. Every parable is intended to shock the listener. And there's no doubt that when the listeners are listening to this parable, they are shocked by the debt. They are shocked by the king's poise in the debt. And then they're incredibly shocked by this servant's lack of humility and grace. Right? Here's this king... He had pity, he cancels the debt, and then he lets him go, right? Those are the three things he does. He lets him go, right? Now, how does he do it? The king looks at his servant. He shows compassion. The average listener is hearing this and saying, why would anybody do this? Let's look at this logically. Why would anybody do this? You know why? Jesus is teaching us that there's no king like this on earth that is this good, this forgiving, and this just, but there is He's saying, on earth there may not be, but I'm pointing to a greater king. This king took pity, yes. But do you know that pity and king, these words are used about Jesus more than any other word and more than anyone else in the Bible? It's used throughout the Gospels. It's incredibly incongruous for a servant, this servant who then goes off and his way of acting like a king is to not learn from his own king and act like the man who's in charge, the man who has power. And what he does is he chokes this other servant who owes him a very small amount. And that's the purpose of the parable. Jesus is teaching us, don't be a king, don't be a servant trying to act like a king, like that, right? Don't be a, a king who's going out there and just trying to condemn people. Because it reflects your view of the king, the high king. The way you learn to forgive is you have to behold the true king who has first become a servant. Jesus looked at his people who owed a great debt to him. Not that we might, we might cost him his glory and his wealth. Not that we might cost him his kingdom. But he looked at us knowing that we have cost him knowing that he would sacrifice his kingdom, knowing that it will come at his cost. Jesus came to us not to choke us of the dead, but to become choked. Not to arrest us, but to become arrested. Not to torture, but to be tortured. All the way to the cross. And on the cross, he was alone. The anger and the wrath of God was pouring out on him. He was in prison. He was separated, cast out. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have been forsaken. I am in prison. I am in hell. Hell is what? Complete separation from the Father. Complete separation from the King. He's in prison. He is in hell. He's in ultimate torture, the cosmic torture, the complete cosmic aloneness. And do you know that his final words were, it is finished? That's a very, very technical term. That phrase, it's one of his final words, it is finished. It's actually a business term in the ancient times. It's a transactional term. Guess what it means? The debt has been paid. When you receive a receipt, you're saying a payment has been made. Jesus Christ on the cross is saying, this is your receipt. The debt has been paid. That means any time you are confronted with your sin, you can look to the cross and know that the debt has been paid. Tremendous cost. Why? Because there's a tremendous love, a tremendous forgiveness for you. Do you see that? If you have spousal trouble, remember your reconciliation to your king. Sibling rivalry and trouble, remember that he was forsaken by his family.
Remember that. The greatest betrayal you've ever been betrayed, the greatest betrayal. His own friends had departed from him. There was no friend nearby. His father had forsaken him, and he was in prison in his soul to the point of hell. He paid down the infinite debt so that we could be free and reconciled to the Father. So if you have relational brokenness, remember that the Father and the Son and the Trinity had been torn apart. That means every pain that Jesus felt, the Father felt as well because he lost his Son on the cross. That relational brokenness, that should be the cure for your relational brokenness. Remember, you can forgive. The Spirit of God, if you trust in the gospel, the Spirit of God is dwelling in with your sin. Your indwelling sin, yet you have the indwelling power of the Spirit to forgive, to absorb the pain, to be able to say, even now, I am open for freedom and reconciliation and complete forgiveness. Do you see that? Can you do that? It's impossible. First of all, it's impossible without, the, without God working in your life. But right now, if you're saying, oh, I really need to forgive, God is working in your life. That's the hope. That's the encouragement. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. You know, the gospel has to melt your heart to forgive because we have such hard hearts to people who've wronged us. As I close, as God's people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with patience, long-suffering. That's Colossians 3, verse 12. Right? Be patient. You don't do that to be loved. That's not a Christian. That's not what it means to be a Christian. You don't do that because, oh, God told me to do this, so I need to do this to be accepted by God. He says, as God's people, you are already holy. You are already dearly loved. There is no more debt than it is a response. Your forgiveness is a response out of gratitude. You see that? Stop being a servant, trying to act like a king. Behold the ultimate king, who became a servant, paid the ultimate debt for you at infinite cost to himself and says, I love you and I spread my arms open in vulnerability and forgiveness so I can embrace you. Will you be able to do that to embrace others at cost to yourself? If you are able to do that, you are forgiving. To err is human. Alexander Pope, the great satirist, said, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Let's pray.